Hello and a warm welcome to Econo Day Unplugged on Tuesday the 1st of June already 2021. Mark Penders stateside. I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. It's a busy period for economic news, which includes a number of GDP, inflation, labour market and PMI updates from around the world, as well as central bank announcements from the Reserve Banks of Australia and India. However, despite the current slightly more relaxed feel to the bond markets, input costs are on the rise pretty well everywhere. So it's likely to be Friday's US employment data that have the greatest potential to sway investor sentiment. So best we start there then. So straight across to Mark, what's expected and what particular aspects should we be focused on? Well, the economy consensus for now, uh, our payroll growth is 645,000 for May. Uh, the uh, consensus range is from 400,000 to 950,000. So there's a, a possibility we could get a million uh, on the payrolls. But, you know, uh, listeners beware because uh, in the April report this time last month, the high estimate was over 2 million. Mm-hmm. And the actual number came in at a paltry 266,000, which uh, left everyone bewildered. Um, so uh, the expectation is a significant uh, move higher, yet it would still take many, many months uh, to make, at a 645,000, let's say, uh, to make up the 8 million shortfall that w- that the U.S. Uh, non-farm payrolls are uh, uh, have uh, suffered during the pandemic. So that's um, that puts employment in perspective. Now you were talking about now inflation. Um, the inflation readings uh, for average hourly earnings in Friday's report are very um, minimal at only 0.2 percent uh, monthly consensus for a, a 1.2 percent annual gain. But this whole uh, uh, wages have been completely skewed by the elimination of the low-end, um, uh, low-paying uh, service jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's very very difficult to read. And traditionally, of course, wage inflation was the key that the policymakers used to uh, forecast what um, uh, policy should be. It, under the assumption that never really prevailed over the last cycle that. Uh, um, tighter uh, a labor market would increase uh, wages, which it never really did to a significant degree and certainly never spilled over into overall inflation. But, um, you know, today we had the ISM. Today's Tuesday, we had the ISM and we had prices paid at 88. Last month, it was in April, it was 89.6. But, you know, this is basically everyone in the sample is saying prices are higher this uh, uh, now than they were a month ago. Now, the pass-through, we uh, did a range of uh, uh, PMI reports uh, today, and uh, there is uh, some pass-through uh, appearing, uh, but it's not to the same degree that uh, the input costs are rising. But, um, you know, the uh, manufacturers are getting a little bit of, of traction, uh, and so that could prove inflationary. Uh, but I guess that still has to be seen. The employment index in the ISM report is worth noting. It came in at only 50.9 in May, despite all these astronomical readings, mm-hmm. all near record highs or at record highs. Yet uh, the samples uh, can't find the on the U.S. side at least is having are having troubles uh, not only finding raw materials and getting them delivered in time. But also finding um, uh, uh, eligible employees who uh, who they can hire. So that's going to 
uh, dampen, uh, you know, uh, some of these issues, some of these inflationary issues, uh, if, if um, uh, th- these constraints uh, limit uh, production. So it's a, uh, it's kind of up, you know, it's, everything is kind of up in the air right now. It's interesting how much these manufacturing business surveys across the world are just, uh, you know, all year long now. And, and even in Japan, uh, which is having COVID issues um, and, and extended lockdowns, uh, their samples are very, are very similar to, to these results in the U.S. And also the optimism is very, very high, a little less high here because of all these constraints and, and uncertainty, whether or not um, uh, w- what the outlook will, will, will really be if they can really keep up with demand. Yeah, it is a very sim- similar situation, I think, we've had in Europe. As you mentioned, there's been a, a host of PMI out, PMIs out over the course of the last well, few hours, uh, at least a couple of days as well. And the story in coming out of Europe, where they're looking at the UK, whether the manufacturing sector, according to the PMI, is enjoying its fastest growth on record or the Eurozone, where it's a similar picture with, again, record growth coming through there as well. But it is very much the case, it seems, at the moment, that yeah, it's, it's how long it's going to take supply to really build up sufficiently to catch up with demand. And until we get that, um, it does seem as if these you know, inflationary pressures are going to be around for some while. I guess from the central bank's point of view, their assumption is that that gap is going to steadily narrow to the extent that although we will get this increase in inflation over the next few months, you know, it will be temporary. And once supply really gets back to normal again, you know, those, those underlying pressures begin to ease a little bit. I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I was guessing from the inflation side, I mean, it's over here, I should pick on the, um, had the update for May, the flash May HICP report, as they call it, for the Eurozone. And it does really fit in with what the central banks are saying generally in the sense that, yes, we did see a jump in inflation. So the headline rate for inflation for the Eurozone now, the annual rate, is at 2.0%. That was up from April's final 1.6%. A little bit stronger than the market consensus, and, and it's the highest outturn we've seen since October 2018. Now, just psychologically, that means that we've got Eurozone inflation finally above target, albeit not by much, but it's the first time we've seen that in what best part of 31 months or so however and it's always a big however uh, but just looking at the way these core indices are going and the the main underlying measure is currently running at just 0.9 percent so although that increased a couple of ticks today that's its annual rate um, it simply just reversed the drop we saw coming through in the previous month so in other words core inflation to all intents and purposes is still just moving sideways although this headline rate is continuing to accelerate yeah underlying pressures don't seem to be materializing at the moment. Ah, but is that because the Eurozone has yet to, to uh, really uh, reopen? And I say that because on Friday we had the, uh, uh, in the U.S., we had the personal income and outlays report and the, and the Fed's price gauges, which uh, uh, contain the Fed's price gauges. So there, this core reading rose 0.7% on a monthly basis, which kind of matches what the yearly basis was in Europe. And this uh, annual rate is at 3%, which is, um, I don't know, that goes back, I don't know, 20 or 30 years or or even more. You don't normally Mm -hmm. see a 3% on the core annual rate, even though that's skewed because of last year's lockdown. But just looking at the monthly, and that followed a 0.4 in 
uh, in the prior month. And so if we, if we get this gigantic acceleration underway in core prices in the U.S., now that could be tied or is tied to the reopening that is unfolding here in the U.S. And that is releasing, I guess, a, a burst of um, – of demand uh, and uh, and a lot of this demand is fed by all the stimulus uh, that we have here in the U.S. Now, do you, is is there less demand, uh, less stimulus in the for the European consumer than there is uh, for the U.S.? I can't even describe what it is for the U.S. It's just unprecedented, I guess. I don't know what the word is, but is that the same level? And do you see uh, a kind of upsurge in demand, or if and when, or when? Uh, reopenings really uh, begin to take off like they uh, like they are here and like they ha- uh, apparently are in the UK. Um, right. Um, which question to answer first? I guess go back to your comments on the inflation side. Is it because Europe hasn't f- fully reopened? I think that's that's a perfectly fair point because clearly most of Europe is lagging a reasonable way behind what we've seen in the states. Because the UK is very different. Uh, and in theory, will be completely open from the back end of this month, subject to what happens to the, you know, the latest COVID numbers. But even over here, I'm the latest inflation numbers are for what April, and the core rate there for the UK, that even then was just running at 1.3%. And, you know, and we've got a 2% target here, and we haven't been close to it for a long time now. Uh, the core rate's been below it for the best part of two years or so, so you know, long before we actually, the COVID actually came in. So it's it still seems for whatever reason at this stage, although there are clearly pipeline pressures which are bubbling away, the wages market per se has yet to, yet, yet to really react. Now, the big question, as you say, moving on to the bit about what happens when we do reopen, will we see a big increase in demand? Well, certainly most of the retailers are indicating that that's what, obviously what they're hoping for. But at the same time, some of the most recent figures, I mean, they've been okay, but they haven't necessarily been perhaps quite as strong as some people have been hoping. UK is a bit of a bit of an exception because by and large, almost all of the economic figures out of the UK have come in on the strong side of expectations of late. But generally speaking, I think it's, it's probably a little bit too early to say whether or not we're going to see this big burst in consumption or we're not. It makes sense, I think, to assume that we probably will do, but it's certainly not guaranteed at this stage. And I think that's one reason why, certainly as far as the ECB is concerned, and of course we have the next meeting, uh, where are we, on, on Thursday week, next week, uh, I suspect they'll still be very much touting the line that well, so far, so good. The economy is doing better, but COVID is still around, even though it's coming down and the vaccination rates are going up. That's all very good. But the economy still needs a substantial amount of monetary accommodation if we're going to get the sort of sustainable recovery that they actually want. So I think you know, big picture stuff is that the way the, the European economy in general is evolving, it's still some way behind where you are. The interesting bit will become, of course, if your inflation numbers remain relatively higher and go higher and Europe starts moving in underlying terms in the same direction, mm. then presume that's when there's some of these bond markets going to start running really scared. That's an interesting point. Yeah. In fact, it's interesting. I'm not you know, ask you. I mean, it's looking at you know since well, and we go back what they say three weeks, certainly four weeks ago. And we're talking on this podcast about well, everyone was talking about you know the shakeout in the bond markets and the way these yields are rising. But it does seem that despite the fact we've had relatively firm inflation numbers versus expectations, you know, bond yields clearly have come down over the course of the last week or two, and it seems that markets are prepared to believe what the central mm-hmm. banks are saying. I.e., yes inflation is going up but don't worry about it it's only temporary is that uh-huh. the sense you get your side i mean why aren't yields higher now i i guess 
aside from technical issues in the market itself, I, I, I fundamentally I, I, that would uh, suggest uh, a uh, faith in the transitory, temporary, uh, one-time. Um, they certainly, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. case has certainly been, for months, has been preparing everyone for these numbers. So they aren't really a surprise, even though the monthly readings are are, are on the high side and at the high end of, of um, the price uh, on the high end of uh, forecasts. But uh, uh, I, 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 you know, that that is a reasonable assumption. Um, but uh, let's turn to the Econodays Consensus Divergence Indexes because I've, you know, in the U.S. it's basically flat. Uh, it had been very, very high, meaning that forecasters were underestimating um, results. And now they're just getting it pretty much dead on. But I've been noticing in the last couple of days that um, the indexes out of Europe seem to be very, very high. And that would that, and how, I can't really put that together, but that would suggest then that the forecasters, um, that data, uh, where they, they have, uh, the, the forecasters had a more lower, uh, uh, even though the European data doesn't seem that high, it's still beating expectations by a large, by an increasingly large degree. I mean, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point, a good point. I think it's worth mentioning. I think what it what it kind of comes down to is the fact that um, we've had you know very bad COVID numbers um, during the first first quarter um, coming out of Europe. Um, so we all had all the restrictions coming in, and as as the numbers continued to deteriorate, you know, increasingly the the embedded expectation in financial markets was that these restrictions are going to be around for a long time. You know, numbers podcasts have talked about Germany's extended its lockdown yet again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in practice, what's happened after a very slow initial delivery of the vaccine rollout, which of course is one of Europe's biggest issues, what's happened is that the, the vaccine um, delivery has accelerated rapidly. Rapidly. And that's been reflected in a number of things. One, it's led to people being, I think, you know, you know consumers and so on being more businesses being more optimistic about the future. Um, it's also led to an earlier than expected easing of some of the restrictions in a number of the big countries. And that's include Germany, certainly Spain, Italy as well. And that's meant that we've led to, although, as we said earlier, the reopening of a European economy is nothing like as, um, as as far down the road at the moment as is on your side. Nonetheless, it has led, I think, to kind of a pickup in economic activity, which is you know stronger than financial markets had been expecting. So and that's been reflected in the ECDIs, which, as you mentioned, by a larger, pretty well in positive territory and reasonably comfortably in positive territory. They're not necessarily talking about a you know, huge rebound in second quarter GDP. GDP growth, but they're certainly talking about a move, I think, you know, back into positive numbers and potentially respectable numbers. And in the UK, where by and large, you know, the, the COVID numbers have come down much faster than people anticipated. You know, it's here where we see you know, almost all the numbers that markets have been forecasting have come in on the, you know, the, the, the actuals coming on the strong side. So the, the UK uh, ECDIs in particular have been holding up at very high levels for quite a while now. You had a run of Swiss numbers today. Awesome. Last week, the, the Swiss numbers were just through the roof. Um, and uh, tell us about, you know, we have the first quarter GDP numbers are coming out. Some of them are first estimates like Switzerland. And that's, you know, that's always hard to for an investor to figure because it's so backward looking. But um, but they are part of, they're the, you know, the fundamental core of what forecasters and policymakers are looking at. So fill us in. 
Yeah, you mentioned um, Swiss first quarter GDP. It comes out sort of you know rather late compared to mo- compared to most of the other big countries. But we had that earlier on today. Um, just on a pure quarter on quarter basis, it showed a contraction of 0.5%. And in fact, that was bang in line with what the market was anticipating, and indeed pretty well in line with what we saw for the eurozone as well. However, I think as, as as you mentioned, it is very much historic and backward looking now, and because of what's happening with the vaccine rollout and the COVID numbers, market more than ever want to know what's happening at the moment. And to that extent, uh, last week, we had yet another record reading on the KOF leading economic index, which is one of the sort of you know, the main barometers uh, financial markets look at when they're trying to get you know, some kind of handle on how the Swiss economy is going to perform over the next three to six months or so. That was its second consecutive record high. And by record highs, we're talking about huge increases here as well. So we're talking about numbers which just, you know, aren't just unprecedented, but they're unprecedented by some considerable way. Mm-hmm. And today we we had the PMI number um, for Switzerland, which I must say doesn't necessarily have the best track record in with its correlation with GDP. But nonetheless, as we saw um, with the KOF, we had a, a record reading in April. We had a record reading in May as well. In fact, it's almost almost up at 70 now, which you now we're talking you know, really strong numbers. So I think if you put it all together at the moment, the indications are that the Swiss economy could have a very good uh, second quarter. And that a bit like the rest of Europe, is because we've seen some of the the planned relaxation of COVID restrictions being implemented earlier than anticipated because the COVID numbers have come down that much more quickly than what's generally expected by, you know, by the scientists and so on. So, so much of this hangs on, you know, what's happening to COVID, whether it's got, we got it down, we can keep it down or not. When's the next um, Swiss National Bank meeting? And what is this on? How are they going to... Uh, they have to, you know, they always seem to be party poopers, right? They don't want hard, strong data because it, uh, it, it inflates their current, raises demand for their currency. But what are they going to do with this? Yeah, so it's a problem for Switzerland. As you mentioned, I mean, obviously they want strong numbers in the sense that they want to see a turnaround in a Swiss economy in the same in the same way that all governments and central banks want to um, want to see with their national economies. For Switzerland, of course, they've still got this big problem of how to manage inflation in the sense that in Switzerland we're talking about inflation numbers which simply just remain horribly low. So they've been trying to get inflation somewhere close to two percent for such a long time now. Actually can't remember. Um, but we're currently running what, as of the April rate, as I recall, it's still only running at 0.3%. The core rate was running at just 0%. These are year-on-year numbers. So the, the danger for Switzerland, of course, is that if we see a rebound in the real economy, and that encourages investors to start moving back into the Swiss franc again. It strengthens the franc. It reduces imported inflation. Mm-hmm. And they're really back to square one. I mean, inflation has been moving up over the course of the last few months, uh, be it on the core terms or particularly headline uh, due to what's been going on with the oil prices. But, yeah, it is still so low. They really need a period to, to allow it to keep going. So I think when we get to the SMB, the next SMB meeting, and that's later on this month on June the 17th, they're probably almost almost stuck i mean they'll just be forced to not really do anything they may make some noise in fact that the economy perhaps is performing rather stronger than expected but bottom line is inflation is still far too low and of course by the way we don't want to see the swiss franc strengthen so in that context you know they've got to do whatever they can to try and keep the swiss franc where it is now well uh, uh, and they're doing this to protect uh, protect their exports um but 
Um, what, what are Swiss exports? Aren't they uh, high-end goods that could uh, have an insulation against, uh, you know, uh, uh, against uh, higher costs that, you the, know, uh, cu- customers want them no matter what? Well, it's tr- I mean, to be honest, if you look at performance of the Swiss exporting sector, then you, I think you might well be justified in saying, well, what is the Swiss National Bank on about? Exports out of Switzerland, obviously you've got the problems with COVID and everything else going at the moment. You know, what's the underlying picture? But, you know, for a long time now, despite the fact that the SMB has been claiming that a Swiss franc is far overvalued, um, the Swiss exporters have actually continued to do extremely well. Now, that may well say something about, as you're intimating, that, you know, their exports aren't particularly price sensitive. So you can take relatively large swings in the exchange rate before you get any kind of real impact coming through in terms of the trade numbers. But I think for the Swiss National Bank now, the real worry is inflation. And they're just concerned that if we continue to see the Swiss franc, or I should say continue to, if we start to see the Swiss franc begin to move higher again, it is going to you know, potentially put more downside pressure on the, on inflation. And they've got this worry, like any other central bank, that if inflation stays negative for long enough, then you know, inflationary expectations start going negative. And once you get people expecting prices to fall, and of course, all of a sudden you can get this complete halt to consumption because everyone expects whatever you want to buy is going to be cheaper next week. So that, I think, is the big issue for them and why the Swiss franc has become such a, you know, a major part of our Swiss monetary policy. You know, there seems uh, some parallels between um, the Swiss franc and the Japanese. You know, I wonder, and these are safe haven currencies, I wonder as COVID, and hopefully it will continue to unravel, uh, ease, I wonder if there'll be a flight out of these uh, safe haven currencies. Um, um, what do you think? Yeah, I think it has become established because looking at the way the Swiss franc has performed over the course well, of during the COVID crisis, Initially, when it struck, um, you had a big move into dollars, as you typically expect during times of you know, global uncertainty. The Swiss franc you know, saw some inflows coming out of the eurozone and to some extent, I think, out of sterling, but it didn't actually do that much. And during the course, so we've had you know, these humpback swings and roundabouts with the COVID numbers. The Swiss franc hasn't really moved a great deal. And I think it's kind of a reflection of the fact that we're at this stage now whereby investors want to feel really comfortable that COVID has been dealt with because they've been kind of caught out before when you know, we had uh, the first hump and the second wave and the numbers started improving and the hope, well, this is it now, COVID's been beaten. And then you get the best part of a third wave or, or whatever you want to call it. Well, now most countries are getting the numbers you know, where they want to be in, in terms of new cases and so on. Uh, the big question mark is, is you know, are they going to stay down or is it going to come back again? And if so, does that mean yet more lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera? So I think you know, in terms of the big picture, what you, what you, you sort of suggest just is, is it makes perfect sense if we do get back to something more like a, a more normal world whatever that really means um, then yes we should see some outflows from perhaps most of the you know the typical reserve currencies into what remain high yielding currencies because let's be honest in, in this environment investors really need to see you know higher interest rates to try and get some funds moving well, you know, I saw, you know, here in the U.S., you don't get as many headlines or concerns about the variants or anything like that. There doesn't seem to be a lot of guidance from um, uh, uh, public health uh, officials or the government on what we can really expect uh, here in the U.S., uh, what COVID doing. It seems the vaccination seems to have hit a, a, a peak. 
Um, so, and the cases are coming way down. But out of the UK, I saw um, a Cambridge professor coming out and warning, you know, they're, they're, it's low, but it could go very, very high very, very quickly. And I saw some of these other uh, uh, things coming out of Europe. Um, what do, should investors, are they, what should investors do with these warnings? Um, go ahead. <laughs> treat, oh, well, I guess treat, I mean, you've got to take them serious because a lot of, certainly as far as the UK is concerned, uh, these professors and scientific experts form part of the panel which are advising the government. So if you get a number of them all basically saying the same thing, then you've got to start believing that, well, okay, the government may need to start going down this route. And so as we call this podcast, I mean, there, at the moment, there is considerable doubt as to whether or not this magical June the 21st date over here, which is supposed to be when we finally get you know, the removal of all remaining uh, social restrictions, um, whether or not that's actually going to going to be going to continue to hold there's a lot of suspicion that, and if you believe the professor you're talking about this morning the recommendation from his uh, his was a uh, rather than june of 21st just to be sure uh, because of these covid variants the safest thing would be to run the lockdown on for another two perhaps three weeks and see what the data are saying so there's a lot of again it just comes down to uncertainty i think and you know the big worry still is that Although we talked before about you know, the UK being further down the vaccination road than many other countries, but still a lot of UK people who have either only had you know, one dose of a vaccine when they need to, or indeed not had any vaccination whatsoever. And so long as that gives the scope for the, you know, the COVID to actually be amongst the population, it gives scopes for you know, more variants. And then the big, you know, the big worry that a variant turns up, which the current vaccines simply can't cope with. So there's still an awful lot of uncertainty. Certainty, I think, about you know, out there about what's going to happen with regard to COVID and yeah, you know, and, and ultimately the economy. Everyone's bullish about the economy because it's all. Let's be optimistic. You know, the world's going back to normal. Um, there's always pent up demand. But if we were to see you know another wave of COVID, then well, it's anybody's guess. And in fact, on that note, I suppose I should mention before we sort of round up and talk on for t too long again, um, Canada, we had the Canadian GDP numbers a short while ago today. And as we've said in the past, Canada's been one of those economies which has actually been performing pretty well, a bit like its um, US neighbour across the border. Well, GDP numbers for um, March, they have monthly numbers, that was up 1.1% on the month. And that meant for the first quarter GDP in Canada at a season adjusted annualized rate. So to put it on U.S. terms, it was up a very solid 5.6 percent, which is pretty respectable by anyone's standards, particularly when you think the Bank of Canada originally expected to post a fairly sizable contraction. So that's all good. And I guess it's going to uh, encourage more talk about possible additional tapering from the Bank of Canada. Their next meeting is next week. Perhaps that's a bit too soon, but July certainly could be flagged. Um, and if we were to get the labour employment report, we talked about the one out in the States. We also get the Canadian made labour labor market report on Friday as well. If that turns out to be much stronger than expected, and that's certainly going to fan the flames. However, you know, these numbers are backward looking and Canada was some way lagging behind uh, the likes of the US and a lot of Europe in terms of the way the COVID numbers uh, developed. Mm -hmm. So they introduced some well, fairly heavy duty restrictions late March and early April time, which you know, could put some downside risk on what's going to happen to the second quarter. So it may be that you know some of the growth we could have had in the second quarter really went into the first quarter and vice versa. So it's uh, yeah, the risk is that perhaps Canada's not really performing you know, quite as well at the moment as the first quarter number might have uh, intimated. 
That said, it should be noted that the vaccine rollout and Canada, again, was one of those countries which started very slowly, has taken off like a rocket over the course of the last month or so. So it's kind of, you know, the bad news is that, you know, heavy restrictions were introduced in March and April. Uh, and indeed, I should mention that the, the flash call from the statistics people for April GDP is minus 0.8%, so not a good month. But this vaccine rollout has been so rapid that, that these should perhaps lead to better numbers coming out as far as you know may and june are concerned it's gonna be an interesting one to watch because there's you know quite a lot going on there mm -hmm. okie dokie um anything else we should mention um, 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 um india i suppose just wrap off the central bank's side of it we got an rbi meeting on friday nothing is expected out of that the good news from india is that the uh, the coronavirus cases appear to have topped a few weeks ago now and they are coming down however they're coming down from as i'm sure people wear horribly high levels mm -hmm. so it seems as if the uh, the rbi will very much be concentrating at the moment upon you know keeping the economy going even though the inflation numbers are probably rather higher than they'd like to see we had the pmi manufacturing out of india today and it was flat it didn't go into contraction but it slowed significantly um, if that's the worst of it, that's not too bad. No, yeah, good call, quite right. And I'd certainly be hoping that. Okie dokie. Well, I guess that's probably enough from us for today then. So on behalf of Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. Podcast will be back next week. And in the meantime, you know what I'm going to say. You can find all the key market moving data and events listed and analysed in Econoday's global economic calendar. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.